This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast focusing exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and we have a very unique, different, special, bonus kind of episode, however you want to frame this. I was, I'm not going to lie, I was in the shower. A lot of my inspiration comes in the shower. I don't know if it's because I'm alone, I'm I'm not going to go too deep into that, but I was thinking... This year, I have done 27 interviews, and I just thought, not everyone listens to interviews, not everyone has, you know, between half an hour, an hour, an hour and a bit sometimes to spare to listen to them, and it's not always that interesting if the topic isn't something someone's interested in, if that's not what their job is, for example. So I thought, well, why not just do a best of? So what I've done is I'm taking sort of clips from each of my interviews from 2023 and I'm going to put them all together across two bulk episodes. So this first part is going to be about an hour and a half, but it's going to be clips from interviews 21 through 33. Each clip will range from a couple of minutes. I think the longest is 10 minutes. But if you don't listen to my interviews, this will give you a bit of a flavour of what they're about. I'll link the original interviews in the description if you want to go back and check out the full chat. Please do that. So the people you'll be listening to in this part one, you have Ray Feisch, a former forensic scientist. You have Jeremy Craddock, a journalist and author. Sam Rennie, forensic anthropologist. Oliver Lawrence, security and intelligence officer, former police officer in Australia. Matt Calvley, former police officer in the UK. Danny Brooke, a former undercover cop. Louise Shorter, investigative reporter. You have David McKelvey, a private investigator, former detective chief inspector. Dr. Robert Green, he's a forensic scientist. And Sally Ann Martin, an author. And then to end with, we have Donald McIntyre, an investigative journalist. Matt Johnson and John Murray in the same episode. Uh, They're both former police officers. And then you have author John Williams at the end. I'll give you a little intro before each clip so you know what it's about. I'll give you a little bit of context. We're going to start with Ray Feisch from interview number 21, all the way back on January 2nd. And in this clip, Ray talks about Adam, the torso of a young boy that was found in the River Thames. So another interesting case I'd like you to touch on briefly. You've covered so many in the book, which I'm going to leave to my listeners to go out there and read for themselves. But one that really spoke to me as far as just amazing work that you did to, I know it ended up not still being solved, but it was the Adam torso in the Thames case. Yeah. Can you just tell me a little bit about how that came about? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I've got to say Adam is the one that I'm scientifically I'm most proud of. And I'll explain the reason why, hopefully. Um, just to give your listeners a little bit of the background, it was um, September the 21st, 2001. Now, that's 10 days after the 9-11 bombings. Pedestrian was walking across Tower Bridge. He was on his way to a meeting. When he looked down in the river, saw what he thought was a beer keg in the river. But when he looked down further, he realised it was the body of a, a young child. 
So River Police got called and they launched their boat from Wapping, which was uh, downstream of Tower Bridge. And the tide was travelling upstream. And about an hour later, they recovered the body of a young child from the River Thames. When the body was recovered, a post-mortem was carried out the following day by a very experienced forensic pathologist, Dr. Mike Heath. They had the torso of a young child. It was missing its uh, head, missing both arms and both legs. So you just had the torso. And what was also strange was that the child was wearing orange shorts. Post-mortem basically showed that the cause of death was a stab wound to the neck. And basically the knife pulled forward very quickly. As Mike Heath said, the only thing I can resemble this to is the bloodletting of an animal. So that was the first thing of a ritual killing coming in. The limbs, he said, were skillfully removed. In fact, uh, they were basically hacked off with a knife or several knives, which were kept fairly sharp. So we had this torso of a young. Nobody had reported this child missing at that stage. I got a call from Detective Superintendent Dave Becks, who I'd known for many years, wanted a meeting with me on the Monday to discuss the case. And he brought along with him Will O'Reilly, who was then a DI. And we discussed the case and we sort of set up a forensic strategy, what we was going to do, what we was going to look at and everything. And I'm not going to go through the all the initial sort of tests that we did. But fairly shortly afterwards, Dave Beggs went and um, went on to the SOAM inquiry, which was running at the time. And Will O'Reilly became the SIO and became DCI. After about three months, we had done all our work. We'd done DNA. We looked for see if we could identify potential parents. None were identified. We looked at DNA from other parts of the body to try and identify an offender, and nothing was seen there. We looked at toxicology. The only thing that we found there was the drug called folkadine. Now, folkadine is a cough suppressant drug. Now, he would have been given this drug probably 12 to 24 hours prior to death. So we had this sort of disparity here that, hold on, this shows some sort of care for the child by giving him this, this cough mixture, but also he was then brutally murdered. So, you know, what was going on? The shorts, it was shown, they were put on after dismemberment, after death and after dismemberment. So again, why put a pair of shorts on after death? And questions kept coming up. Will O'Reilly, why dismember him? He was only a small child barely more than a foot long. You could have got the body of that child into any reasonable size hold. So why dismember? So all these questions kept coming up. After three months, police had done a vast amount of investigation, looking for sort of children that had gone missing, children that hadn't returned to school, looking at immigration, child facilitation, which was um, prominent at that time. And three months, they'd gone no, got nowhere. Three months, we hadn't added anything to the case, I, I must say. The head of homicide investigation then was Commander Andy Baker, who was kind enough to do the forward for my book. He basically said he was going to set up a ring fence team and basically we were going to continue this investigation. He decided to set up a meeting at Brams Hill, which was the senior staff training school, invited a number of current SIOs, number of retired SIOs, academics, medical people, etc., etc. In the morning, we gave a briefing of what we'd done today. In the afternoon, people were set tasks of saying how to progress the case. I came out of that uh, meeting at Brams Hill, one task and one task only, find out as much as I can about that child from science. 
as I possibly can. So that gave us basically a clean sheet of paper, just go and do something and go and speak to people, you know, find people that can add something to it. The first thing we sort of decided on was, could DNA give us any information? DNA, the way it's used in um, criminal investigations, basically decoded to identify people. That's pretty simplistically, but that's what it does. Although DNA, per se, gives rise to your physical characteristics, the DNA that was decoded in the forensic science thing didn't give any information about physical characteristics, i.e. skin colour, eye colour, etc., etc. So we had to look. And what we were looking for is, could we determine the provenance of this child, where this child had come from, it was a black child, we knew it was a black child, from his DNA. Where was he born? I started to ask around various DNA so-called experts about doing DNA. And basically, almost everybody was blanking it, saying it can't be done. And the biologist at the lab who asked said, don't waste my time with it and their money, which I thought was a fairly... Um, I wasn't too pleased with that answer. I must admit. But I eventually sort of spoke to a researcher in Birmingham at FSS Birmingham, Andy Urquhart, Dr. Andy Urquhart, late Dr. Andy Urquhart. And I said, Andy, could we do anything about this? And in my naivety, I said, look, London's a great cosmopolitan city. It's a great cosmopolitan city. It's because of all the nationalities there that mix, they form relationships, and therefore the gene pool is basically spread within that sort of city. And that's why London's a great city. Well, I said, if it's a, a little village in Africa, me, never having been to Africa in my life, thought that people will basically grow up in that village, they will marry within that village, they will have children within that village, and they will grow up, and therefore the gene pool will be retained within that village. Could we link his DNA to a gene pool from somewhere like that? And he said, yeah, it's possible, I suppose, but we haven't got a database. So we begged, stole, borrowed sort of DNA information from anywhere we could get it, anything that had a geographical sort of link. And we carried out the tests on Adam and compared it against the database. We excluded South Africa, as possible where he was born and raised, excluded East Africa. What we couldn't exclude was Northwest Africa, the area around Nigeria, Cameroon, Benin, Togo, that sort of area. Okay, that's fine, but... His parents could have come across, um, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago. He could have been born and bred in Peckham all his life. That would have still given us the same result. But it was a start. At least we made a step forward. Next thing is um, we looked at was basically a thing called stabilised isotope analysis. I'm not going to go into um, the science of this too deeply, but isotopes are basically different forms of the same elements. And what we looked at then, and there's a phrase called we are what we eat. And that is very much true in this. Now, these isotopes, the ratio of these isotopes, have a geographic provenance. So you can tell whether or not a person's born, bred in London from the person's isotope. I now live, when I'm there, the Wilder Kent. So my bone signature would have the Wilder Kent signature. If I move, say, to Birmingham, it would take six years for, you know, that signature to change. You yourself live in the north? north yeah, Yorkshire. East, yeah. Yorkshire. You will have a Yorkshire sort of signature. So we did the sober lifestyle analysis on myself and yourself. It would show we live miles apart. So we got the services of Professor Kempire and did stable isotope analysis on Adam's bones. 
what it showed basically was he wasn't born and raised in London. So we had a child now that wasn't born and raised. We had um, the um, isotope signature for this child, and we asked, okay, if it wasn't London, where? And he come across sort of the same sort of thing that we got from the DNA of Northwest Africa around there. It comes from an area of very old rock, he said. We also had a cultural advisor on African religions on board, and he was coming into that area. So we started from the DNA, the isotope analysis, and the intelligence that the religious um, expert gave us, we were coming to Northwest Africa. So we said, that's great. Have we got a database? No, we haven't got a database. Right, well, either we stop it here or we go and make one. Well, Andy Baker's not one for stopping, I will tell you that, because he, going back, they're taking advice from the FBI, and they basically said this case was unsolvable. Just wrap it up. You're not going to solve it. Well, that's like a red wreck to a ball to Andy, because he said, we're not having the death of a young, another young black child on the streets of London unsolved, bearing in mind at the time Damanola Taylor was unsolved. So he said, we will do more. Myself, the SIO, Will O'Reilly, and Andy Urquhart had an all-expensive paid holiday, three and a half weeks to Nigeria, where we travelled all over Nigeria collecting samples for isotope analysis. Those samples being soil, animal bones from the local markets, roadkill bones, and we also got into three mortuaries to take bone samples from human subjects that were from that area. We bought over 150 samples back to England, did the stabilised type analysis, and proved that Adam came from the region of Benin City. And that is how that all sort of progressed. There was a suspect at the time, or a person of interest, I should say, from the suspect, uh, Joyce Hosagidi, who had come into the quarry. She also came from Benin City. She was smuggled into this country from another person by the name of Kingsley Ojo, who had also come from Benin City. So it all started to fit. And the investigation proceeded on those lines. Unfortunately, Joyce had mental health problems, and she was an extremely unreliable witness. So although papers were part of the Director of Public Prosecutions, no charges were ever laid on anybody as yet. Next up, we have Jeremy Craddock, who I spoke to on January the 16th. This was interview number 22. Jeremy talks about researching and writing his true crime book called The Jigsaw Murders, which was the true story of the Ruxton killings. So, you know, when you're researching the book and then writing it, do you gather all the research first and then convert that into a book or do you write it as you're going along? Right as I go along. it's Because obviously I'm, I was fitting the writing in around, you know, working full time as a lecturer at Manchester Met Uni and fam, you know family life and that and uh, so it was doing it on, on the go and and obviously you don't know what material you're going to uncover so the the one thing with it being a true story is you you know the the kind of the the narrative you know what's there and then it's obviously trying to find the information to to flesh it out if you will and and obviously the, the kind of the key scenes within the book would be determined by what information I could find. Obviously, because it's journalism, because it's narrative nonfiction, I couldn't make anything up. So if I couldn't find information, then I couldn't really write about it. You you can speculate to a degree. You can make logical assumptions as long as that you're not speculating and you're distorting the story. So 
you could make certain assumptions that Ruxa might have done certain things, but not in relation to the killing. So a lot, a lot of the writing around the Ruxton killings, you'll often find there's a scene where they describe exactly what happened in the murder. So they'll dramatise it with Ruxton did this, Ruxton did that. Ruxton never confessed to it. There was a confession that was found afterwards, but he never, under under interview, he never confessed that he killed the two women. There were obviously no living, you know, no survivors to it. So we don't actually know precisely what happened. We've only got the the interpretation of the forensic scientists, which was given at the trial. So I had this problem with the book. Do I write the murder scene or what do I do? So when you read the book, I don't actually describe the murder. You sort of get the scenes leading up to it and then we pick up the story immediately afterwards and what what Ruxton did. And that's all based on recorded evidence. But you find out in the trial scenes what he did because the forensic scientists talked about it. You know, they, they go into a lot of detail about how he killed them. But from an ethical point of view and a journalistic point of view, I felt that was important really because I, I couldn't I couldn't make anything up. But you do see accounts of the trial of the case where writers have done that and they've tried, and you're sort of straying into fiction. And I, I think, you know, from an ethical point of view, this next clip comes from interview number twenty-three with forensic anthropologist Sam Rennie. I spoke to Sam on January thirtieth, and he talks about the different sides of anthropology and the oldest set of remains that he's ever come across. So, is the two separate? aspects of anthropology then there's the bone side and the soft skin side or is it kind of one and the same it's kind of amalgamated into one as in you'll you'll have those who are more who will purposely train themselves solely more in the dry bone because they know within themselves that i don't want to deal with flesh i don't want to deal with i want to deal with stuff that's just bone it's probably easier to disassociate if it's just bone so it it sounds horrible. It really is because they don't, I don't want to say there's not much of a smell because there is, but it is one of those. It's just like, yeah, I, I look at a skull, but there's still no face there. Yeah. So yeah, it, for some people, it's a lot easier to disassociate. For me, it's, I don't want to say I'm happy with either because that makes me sound like, a, you know, a weirdo, <laughs> but it's, um, I can work well with both. So let's take it the other way then. What's the oldest set of remains you've come across? I've dealt with is 10,000 years old. Wow. Yeah. So my history's not great. <laughs> what time period is that? Is that ancient well, Egypt or is that bloody... So that days? is, it's, um, it's hunter-gatherers. Okay. So it's kind of, and that is in Mexico. Right. 10,000. Wow. 10,000 years. Give or take ten thousand either side. <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh, yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying to think. The dating on that, I think, is like give or take four hundred years. But don't quote me on that. <laughs> okay. okay. But yeah, so th- that's wow. the oldest. And I remember when I first looked at it, I, I I was there in in Mexico, and I got brought in, and it's like, hey, we've got this. So I just hold it. I just hold the skull in my hands, and I go. Oh yeah, by the way, Sam, this is 10,000 years old. It's like the second oldest complete skeleton in the Americas. And I'm like, you are telling me this whilst I'm holding like, <laughs> you should have told me this before. <laughs> like, yeah, don't tell yeah. me whilst I'm holding it. So yeah, so that's the oldest. So that's 
that's then obviously leaving the the profession of forensic anthropology and that's going more into the general overarching profession of biological anthropology Mm -hmm. where we just deal with people what is the if you can kind of describe the difference between what a ten thousand year old skull would look like versus one that say is between naught and five years old is it the color the size the size i assume if it's ten thousand possibly it, the size is it, quite a quick turnaround for evolution, but yeah, yeah, just, yeah, just super quick. Yeah, um, the sizing of the thing, so that's that's very difficult to do. So we do know that there are, um, I don't want to say age related because we, I don't want to get confused with the person's biological age, but like temporally, like in Earth time, Earth age, there is a difference in how the skull or the body kind of looks mainly due to adaptation like we're not hunter gatherers anymore mm-hmm. we're currently sat down on hopefully comfy chairs yeah. <laughs> they weren't doing that ten thousand years ago they were busy they were always active in terms of like but then preservation is kind of like a big thing so i would say like the biggest one of the biggest differences between a skull that i've say that i get called in you know from the police here say we found a skull can you pop down to the morgue or can you pop around to have a look and it's modern it's grease and it's the smell right because bone is a mixture of organic compounds and inorganic compounds so that organic part of it is the bit that produces the smell and the grease and everything and we can see the grease we can feel the grease and we can smell the grease that's on it and we're just like hmm this is modern. We, this is definitely new. But if we're talking 10,000 years old, it's just dry. It is dry human bone. So, so I'm guessing you mentioned like the biscuit consistency. Yeah. Is that, is that, it's just hardened by that point. It's hardened, yeah. The, the, that biscuit crumb, crumb consistency or is solely dependent on the environment that it's in. Hotter climate in Mexico. Kind of yeah, so it's a lot drier. However, the skeleton I was dealing with was found in the cenotes. So it's kind of found in those underwater cave systems. Right. So, and then our diver actually found it, retrieved it, spent God knows months and months doing pre-treatments on it so we could actually touch it without it disintegrating. Oliver Lawrence was my next guest on February 13th. This was interview number 24. He is based in Australia. He's a former police constable. You might have seen him on maybe GB News or Talk TV. Sometimes he comes on as a consultant. He's a security and intelligence investigator. Oliver talks about the challenges of working in remote areas of Australia, and he tells a rather humorous story about crashing a car. So I went out to a place in southwest Queensland called Hungerford, which in itself and and ironically i don't live too far away from a place called hungerford here in the uk which is fairly famous sadly for the michael ryan incident back in yeah. the um, 80s hungerford 90s. Massacre, yeah that's right so um so and in in my hungerford in queensland there was only 12 people living in the town and my family made up four of those but it's a border town with the border of new south wales and basically you're out there as not only a representative of the police you're also out there as a representative of the fire brigade, the ambulance, Queensland Transport. So you're registering cars, you're giving people driving tests, you're giving them driver's license. You take on this multifaceted role. 
as well as you know the policing change dramatically you become a community cop you know you become the guy that people go to or girl in that for that mind who they go to for support to talk about things mental health issues are massive out there because you know people are isolated and they're lonely and it's very hot it's the middle of nowhere and quite frankly I think both my wife and I would agree that we weren't prepared for the challenges that were going to present us in terms of when it rains, you can't go anywhere because the roads become unpassable. Day one, we arrived, my wife was chased around the garden by a snake. And there I was with Glock out trying to shoot a brown snake, and trying to bite my wife, you know, and we'd only just arrived. You know, all this stuff, you know, the doctors coming by aeroplane, you know, the Royal Flying Doctor Service, one of the most amazing organizations there is in Australia. But my patrol area was massive. It would take me two hours to get to one end. So it's like two hours by two hours by two hours. You know, my patrol area was about 15,000 square kilometers, if not more. And my biggest challenge working in that remote area was illegal pig hunting. So people coming up from New South Wales and Sydney pig hunting with very, very powerful firearms or felons crossing the border, coming through in stolen vehicles every so often, not regularly. But the policing was so much different out there. It was incredible. And, and quite frankly, it was more of a simple life. When things went bad, they went very, very bad. I crashed a car out there and certainly realized what it meant to drive safely because I was in a troop carrier and I rolled it in bad weather and had to walk four hours with an injury with all my gear over me. That's when I realized nobody comes down the road. You know, you see a car every two or three hours and you'll very vulnerable if you make mistakes and you and, and you behave inappropriately the environment will bite you just got this image of you like benny hill style trying to shoot this, <laughs> this snake in the back garden <laughs> well there is do you know what is so funny because when i well it's not funny but it was it is looking back on it when i rolled my car i'd just been to kanamala which is just up the road and they wrap your groceries they're very kind they wrap it all up you know and they put it in a box and i just wanted to get home it was a two and a half hour drive back to hungerford so it's a long way and I said to this cashier, I said, don't worry about wrapping the groceries, you know, like it's not like I'm going to roll the car. Oh. Anyway, lo and behold, two hours later, I'm upside down. I've been hit in the head by a rogue apple out of this box. And I crawled out of this car having survived rolling the car three times in the bush, a bit shaken, a bit of an injury to my head. I was standing in the middle of this dirt road. The sun was just setting. It was starting to get a little bit chilly. So I thought, well, I'm not too far from the national park. If I fire off a couple of rounds, maybe somebody in the national park will hear and will come out to investigate. So there I was in the middle of this road. I got my Glock out and fired three rounds, bang, 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 into the sky. And then for some reason, I had this kind of moment where I thought, Jesus Christ, I've just fired three rounds into the sky. They've got to come down. I've, like, I've survived a car crash. Now I'm going to get hit by some sort of rogue 40 caliber bullet coming out of the sky. I don't know why I stupidly thought that because the chances were slim. So I was running up and down the road like a bloody lunatic thinking, oh, I don't want to die from a rogue bullet. But uh, then my four-hour walk home, my wife greeted by me at the porch going, where's the car? I'm like, well, it's up the road. I've just had a car crash. <laughs> Not how are you? You know, where's, where's the groceries? Or where's did I get in trouble for crashing that car? I tell you what. Next up, I had former police officer Matt Calvley, former police officer in the UK. This was interview number 25 from February 27th. And Matt tells us the story... I shouldn't laugh. It's it's a funny story, but realistically, it could have been far worse. It talks about the time he was bitten by an escaped monkey called Clive. What's the worst injury you've received? Was it the, the sort of face gouging or is the worst ones in that? The worst one I would think 
was where I nearly lost my left thumb because I got attacked by an escaped monkey. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, sorry. It's just funny to hear. It is funny. <laughs> it is funny. Don't worry. This was a Sunday morning, early Sunday morning, and Scotland Yard called us on the radio to direct us to a house in Shepherd's Bush where the occupier reports that a monkey has climbed in through the kitchen window. Initially, my colleague and I rejected this call because this, now this is a Sunday morning wind-up. This is not a real call. Yeah. But Scotland Yard insisted, so we went down and this woman shows into the house. And sure enough, there's this uh, fluorescent yellow and green monkey sitting on the worktop, uh, about two feet long with about the same length of tail. And I'm sort of completely gobsmacked. I said, where, where did that come from? And she said, it was just climbed through the window. It's obviously domesticated. It's tame, you know. Mm. So I tentatively approached it and it was tame. It was, it was playing with my fingers with its little hand. And then it jumped to my hand and ran up my arm, sat on my shoulder. So... This is the most surreal situation. I'm a you know, police officer in full uniform in a house in Shepherd's Bush with a monkey's hat on my shoulder. Um, my colleague has gone outside to phone, uh, well, to make calls, get calls made to the RSPCA, um, London Zoo, anybody else we can think of, to find out what to do with this creature. And then the, uh, this lady's husband came into the, ha- into the kitchen carrying a large cardboard box and said, well, let's put it in here till we know what to do with it. The monkey had other ideas. I went to take it off my shoulder and it just literally clamped its teeth right through my left thumb. I I grabbed it around the neck and pulled it away and dropped the monkey to the floor. This went blood spurting everywhere. And then everything went black. And then the next thing I remember, I I could hear a siren and I woke up and I was sprawled across the backseat of the police car while my colleague was racing me to the hospital. got a kitchen roll wrapped around my hand and uh, went, went to Hammersmith Hospital and they basically sewed my thumb back together. And it was um, over a year before I got full use of it back again, but I did get full use of it back. I still have the scar. It turned out the monkey was a domestic pet that had escaped from a few doors away and gone garden hopping. Now, a lot of people have read this story in my book, and they're reading it thinking it's completely improbable and it's probably just a made-up story. Uh, until you get to the middle of the book in the photo section, and there's the original press cutting from the Hammersmith Gazette about the incident, which was leaked to them. So 30 years in the Met facing um, guns and knives and violent people, and the worst injury was from an escaped monkey. Did it have any, because I'd be worried about infections, did it did you have to have any jabs or anything? Yeah, the, just the usual tetanus, yeah. stuff like that. Uh, you mean me on the monkey, sorry. <laughs> I did mean you, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> just use just a, a tetanus shot. Yeah. I thought you were going to say then in the middle of the book, there was a picture of your thumb in the worst state it could possibly be rather than a newspaper article. No, I didn't get that photographed at the time, which is a bit of a regret. Um, And I mean, I I still carry the scar a little bit, but uh, no, at the time I didn't get the the injury photographed. I did read only the headline, I guess, of this story, Squirrel Monkey, called Clive. Is that right? That's it, Clive, my friend. (laughs) Have you been in touch with Clive since? No, I haven't, no. I don't think we shared a great friendship, to be honest. No, well, stay safe, Clive, if you're listening. Up next, we have Danny Brooke, a former undercover cop. This was interview number 26 from March 13th. Danny talks about the scariest undercover operation she's ever been on. What's the scariest operation, I guess, you've been on, or a moment where you thought, I might be in a bit too deep here? Probably, um my first ever deployment <laughs> the one that I should have just left <laughs> I thought this is not this is going the wrong way they like this is a lot like you know a sign just leave I was in Tottenham in North London and was 
just told I need to go and find out the supply of class A. You know, that I, I didn't know at that point that's not how it normally works. <laughs> I thought that was just, I was new. <laughs> and I just wanted to be a part of the club. I wanted everyone to think that like, she's gone out and done it. Because you don't want to get knocked. You don't want to fail. You know, you don't want to come back without your product. Yeah, of course. Um, but I managed to get the product. But the guy decided he also wanted a favour from me and pulled me down an alley. And I said, I'm not having that. Can I say things like this on here? I don't know. Do what you want, don't you? Yeah. I said, I'm not having sex with you. And I was like, my man will kill us. He will, like, he will absolutely kill us. And it went on and on and on. And he said, no, 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 I don't want you to do that. And he started undoing his trousers. And I thought, oh, no. <laughs> like, here we go. And I'd, bought, I'd already bought the drugs. So he should have been gone by now. And I should have been on my way back to the safety location. At that point, I did think, what am I? Like, seriously, what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to do? Because he's... He's way bigger than I am. He's telling me what he wants. And I thought, I'm going to have to bite it and run. I'm going to just have to bite it or like clench down on him and just like leg it. Because I could still see the road. Yeah. I mean, he would have outrun, even in pain, he would have outrun me because he was massive. But I didn't, like that, I did think I was in trouble there. I thought, this is, I've, literally, this is my career over. But I was saved. I was wearing a, a um, piece of kit where it's two ways so they could hear everything that was going on. And somebody heard what was going on and they come and rescued me, but kept it covert so, <laughs> so okay. I could go back and buy it from him again. <laughs> and you didn't have to buy it. I did go, yeah, I didn't have to buy it. I didn't have to, but. <laughs> that's, that's a relief. <laughs> Bloody hell, fire. You did, yeah. It's probably the sort of thing where you think it sounds more glamorous than I imagine it can be being an undercover cop. Because when yeah. you're in situations like that and you're on your own with some guy that's a bad guy and you're thinking, Jesus Christ, what am I going to do? I mean, it's good that you had your wits about, you know, the road was there and luckily you had the two-way radio, which is a good thing. But I think as well, in them scenarios, women that I would associate with in a covert role who were going to buy Class A drugs for their boyfriend or for themselves, you know, if, if a guy and the dealer would drag them down an alleyway, a lot of these people are desperate and they will do whatever he says because, one, they don't want to annoy him because they want to keep being able to buy from him again. And secondly, a lot of the time they'll get the gear for free, so... Right. And it's, that's a sad state of affairs, isn't it? Louise Shorter was my next guest on March 20th. This was interview number 27. She is an investigative reporter, so I wanted to ask her opinion on prosecution teams. What's your opinion on prosecution teams, the people who are going out there to convince a jury that this person in the witness box is guilty, when that might not necessarily be the case? What's your moral take on that? Well, they're doing their job, aren't they? They are. They have a job to do, which is to assess the evidence which the Crown Prosecution has put forward to them, which the police have gathered, and to take that and present it in the best way. It will have already reached a certain standard for the Crown Prosecution Service to to be convinced that a charge should be brought. So they have to they have a test to be able to make sure that they think yes, we've got a, a, a good prospect here of getting a conviction. So the evidence should be in place. And we have various checks and balances within our trial system. So, you know, if a, if a trial begins and there isn't really good solid evidence against a suspect, then we have legal checks where a defence team are able to say, there's no case to answer here. We, the, the judge, you should stop this trial and you shouldn't allow it to go forward. So, so we have good checks and balances in place. And I think, you know, prosecutors are like, other lawyers that are doing their work for the defence teams, they are they have a job to do and they are doing it in, to the best of their ability. And I'm, I'm sure that, you know, by and large, they're all good professional people who are who are decent human beings all at the same time. 
I think the area that I sort of worry about a bit sometimes is whether or not defence teams have all that they need to be able to properly defend a client. Have they got legal aid funding to be able to go through all of the material in the case and find out if there's something in there which the police or prosecution, which the police have found, the prosecution have got that actually helps the defence case. There's a, it's a, to do with disclosure. There's a, a legal requirement for disclosure to be made so the defendant can have a fair trial. If there isn't sufficient funding in place to make sure that the defence lawyers can go through all that material, then they can't do all of that check. So that, that's kind of difficult, you know. I think, but coming back to your question, I think the thing that the prosecution teams often do very well, and in some of the cases that I've worked on, the defence teams don't do so well, is that the prosecution very often, they are painting a picture of what happened. So what the jury hears from the prosecution is, this is our account of what we think happened on the night of the murder or whenever it might be. And they have a kind of a joined up picture. Well, they've got all the, you know, all of it's like a dot to dot, all of the little bits of the puzzle are all there. And they convince the jury of this overall picture by presenting evidence from all these different people that make all the dots to join up the picture. Very often when things have gone wrong, I think that what's happened is that the defence don't do that sufficiently. They sort of take a position that it's for the prosecution to make the jury sure of guilt. We don't have to make them sure you're innocent. We just, you know, that, that the, the, the burden is on the prosecution to do that. And so I think that very often when there's a wrongful conviction, some the person in prison will say, I wanted us to call this witness or I wanted something else to happen or I, I thought we should do more on this or that. And we didn't do it because my defence team thought that the prosecution didn't have enough to convince the jury. And yet the jury apparently was convinced. So I think that we have to make sure it's not so much criticising prosecution teams. I think it's really important that defence teams do all that they can to be able to convince the jury that this person is innocent and not just sort of rest almost on their laurels, but actually it's the prosecution that's got to make the jury sure. Because, because if you've got a picture that's being painted by the prosecution team of what happened that night, that's one big cohesive picture that, you know, makes sense. If the defence don't do that to the same extent, then I think that can leave them in doubt. And maybe then sometimes it's just that the prosecution was more persuasive. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. David McKelvey was my next guest. He's a former detective chief inspector and a private investigator now. This was interview number 28 from April 10th. This was actually my most successful video on YouTube, about 60,000 views, la-dee-da. I asked David about the arrest of Darren Nichols. This was around the Essex murders case and how that arrest came about. How did the arrest of Darren Nichols come about? Because my understanding is it was drug-related, but not necessarily related to those murders at first. Is that right? It is, yes, right. There was a combined effort, shall we say, put together by Essex Police, which combined the South East Regional Crime Squad, which was our team, Team 19, based at Brentwood, the uh, National uh, National Investigation Service of uh, HMRC, Customs and Excise, who were looking at Michael Steele and Jack Wombs, and obviously the murder squad, Essex murder squad, and also their proactive team. So they had a drug squad and a serious crimes unit. So there was a combination of people. How it came about is information 
came up from some covert facilities that suggested there was going to be an importation of drugs into the UK from Holland. And it was the information was that it was going to be undertaken by Michael Steele. And so uh, an operation was mounted that involved Husband's Excise, Essex Police and the Regional Crime Squad. And basically, they monitored a rib, a fast boat that went out from the UK, out to Holland, picked up the drugs and then came back into the UK. And the idea was to arrest those bringing in the drugs into the UK. Originally, uh, the whole thing was completely monitored. So the trip out on the boat to Holland and the trip back was covered by an aircraft with infrared on behalf of Custom Excise. I remember seeing the video of that. Where it went wrong initially was that the importation was meant to come into Point Clear, which is further up the coast. So all of the Customs and Excise officers were effectively waiting at Point Clear for the importation to come in. In reality, the boat came to Point Clear and then followed the coast down into Clacton and onto the beach in Clacton, which there was then an exchange on the beach and the drugs were taken out of the rib, put into the Land Rover and then drove off through Clacton. All of that was captured on video, literally from the aircraft, and I remember seeing it. And it was that following day, or that day, that we were deployed as a surveillance team and a surveillance capability to go to the Braintree area. We were told not to go to to Braintree Police Station to brief, and so we briefed in a Sainsbury's car park, and we were then deployed to follow Darren Nichols around. Darren Nichols uh, was kept under surveillance by ourselves, he had a number of meetings and he picked up a parcel and uh, basically he was followed, two cars, one in front of the other, and they had a, a parcel of drugs, which from other intelligence sources suggested they were in the cars. We arranged for the cars to be stopped by, by traffic officers, uniformed officers, to avoid us being shown out as you know involved in surveillance. And that's where my story sort of starts to become a bit unusual because uh, it wasn't until many years later, four years ago, that when I, I was speaking to one of the lawyers, they started asking me about the actual stop and it, going back and remembering it, something wasn't right about it. Because, for instance, Darren Nichols was out and he was on the phone on his mobile telephone. They were allowing him to make a telephone call, which is bizarre. They couldn't find the drugs, 10 kilos of cannabis. And in the end, frustration sort of built up. And I drove down, personally down, pulled up, pretended I was passing, got out, and we ended up taking over the search of the vehicles. And you know, literally behind the driver's seat was a, a toolbox with 10 kilos of cannabis in it, plainly on site. So why no one found it was a bit of a question mark. And then at that point, I remember sort of saying, well, who's allowed him to make a phone call? And he was on the phone, I now know, and I knew at the time, uh, he was on the phone to the police officer, his handler, and he was also on the phone to Mickey Steele. And that's always been a massive question mark for me. Number one, why didn't they find the drugs? Number two, why was he on the phone? That long story short, uh, I arrested him for the 10 kilos of cannabis. He was taken back to the police station. And that's where the events of Rettenden started to unfold because he was interviewed twice by Essex police. My involvement ceased. I literally wrote up my evidence and passed it over to Essex police. 
Essex Police interviewed him on two occasions. He made no comment interviews with a solicitor present. And then he asked to see a senior officer. He asked to see a senior officer. Another interview took place down a cell and not on tape and with no solicitor present. And during that unrecorded interview, Darren Nichols then said that he would give information about who had committed the murders. And he then named, obviously, Michael Steele and Jack Wombs as the people responsible for the murders and admitted that he was the driver or claimed to be the driver in relation to the murders. And then that then generated further interviews and obviously in due course led to the, the convictions of Jack Wombs and Michael Steele for the retina murders. Dr. Robert Green, OBE, JP, was up next, a forensic scientist. This was interview number 29 from April 24th. Bob talks about situations where he felt that the work he'd done was unable to help further the development of a case. Has there been a situation where you felt, I'm not actually able to assist you in, not as much as you wouldn't be able to do what they requested, but it hasn't come to anything that's led to a development in the case? Often, um, very often, is that that's the case because, of course, you know, you those people who actually watch CSI, you know, I often say to, to my students at Kent, you know, we the, the storyline follows very, very smoothly, doesn't it? You know, you can actually follow the, the, the story. Well, with major crimes, and in fact, to some extent, with minor crimes, more volume crimes, it's not that sort of linear process. Things sort of move, you know, things change. What, what was the hot topic one day, the hot clue one day is not the, the hot clue but the following day. So, you you know, when you're dealing with these cases, you never really, really know what's around the corner. Uh, again, one classic case. I mean, can, can I tell you about it now or would you like me to come to it later on? Crack on. I'm happy to hear. Okay, well, uh, it was, this is going back toward the, the end of my, my operational career. Prior to me joining the uh, Forensic Science Service, uh, yeah, like I said, I, I restudied, retrained and Got a job ultimately with the Forensic Science Service in uh, in London. Uh, so just prior to that, on the 20, 20th of November nineteen ninety six, it was. I'm just looking at old copies of my my diary here. I was asked to to uh, by that time I'd been promoted. I was asked by one of the people who worked with me. I would say with rather than for, but she, she worked with me, and she said, "Bob, it was about ten o'clock at night." She said, "Bob, can you come to this particular address?" She said, "Because." No one is reading this correctly. It was an old guy, an elderly man who'd been found dead, who'd been found with a dressing gown cord tied around his neck, and it wasn't being taken serious, as seriously as she thought it should have been. And she was absolutely right, because, of course, the officers who'd attended, now, again, this figure was still burning to my mind. Um, there were 16 officers who actually had a little trip to that scene to see what was 16. happening. 16. Wow. Um, I suppose nowadays you'd have trouble to actually get 16 police officers together. But, uh, but there were 16 who actually traipsed through that scene, which again caused problems further down the track. But the, the scene was that it was an elderly man, a, a lovely guy, father, grandfather, um, who was found dead in his, in his house. And he'd, uh, he'd, he'd got a dressing gown cord tied around his, his neck um, just by the front door. Um, there were drops of blood, vertical drops of blood, like a nosebleed type drop of blood. And his glasses were, were knocked off. Like I said, you, you really never know what's going to be around the corner. So eventually as part of the, the initial actions we did that night, we made a photographic record of the, the scene. We 
took some, some video of the, uh, the entire house at the time. And then the idea was to actually leave the poor deceased in situ. He'd been, of course, certified dead. Um, but we were going to re- regroup the following morning and uh, gather additional specialists around us, people like blood pattern analysts, that type of thing. So as I was taking the, um, uh, the photographs, I, I noticed a cigarette end. This guy, I should say at this point, uh, was an avid gun collector. Uh, he collected guns, and I was actually murdered for his collection of weapons. But up in the attic, the, the sort of garret room of this very big Victorian house was his uh, ammunition box, where he actually kept all of his black powder. He, he reloaded his uh, his cartridges. So at the side of this, the, 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 of course, the lot was off, um, and uh, there was this black powder inside. A number of weapons had been stolen from the, the room downstairs. So the, the motive, of course, obviously was, was robbery. And then seeing this, this cigarette end at the side of this, this ammunition box, uh, and thinking, well, no one would smoke around you know, live yeah. powder. Uh, nevertheless, you know, this guy also, I mean, even more of this, this guy had a, a distinguished military career. Uh, so he would have never smoked around that. So very often, very quickly, that was the, the burning clue. But remember that this is now 1996. The DNA database had gone live only the year before, yeah, 1995. So we were really at the, the early end of forensic science, but very early end of probably DNA profiling. So very quickly, we sent off the cigarette end to the laboratory. It came back as a, really a full profile. Um, so we actually got a full DNA profile from that cigarette end. But sadly, no match. No match, of course, at that stage, because the offender, suspect, should be called at this stage, was not actually on the database. Now, moving, you know, cutting a very, very long story short, um, eventually this guy is arrested. And two weeks previous, it turned out that he'd actually gone to this person's address, the, the old person's address, and he passed himself off as a solicitor. Um, and so we, we sort of thought, well, actually, we, when we actually went to the Defender's address. Um, what would he actually wear if he was trying to pass himself off as a solicitor? We seized a uh, like a crumby overcoat, uh, which bore no obvious signs of blood. Showed no obvious signs of blood, but we, we looked at it in a little small makeshift, I suppose, laboratory in those days. We got a reaction to the possible presence of some blood. Uh, we sent that off, and actually, that was the final piece of the jigsaw. We got the DNA match by that time on the, the cigarette end. Of course, once he was arrested, you get the match on the cigarette end. But he was able to say, well, you know, yes, I was there, but I actually didn't kill him. Uh, you know, I went with another guy who actually killed him. And, uh, so he was putting all sorts of red herrings in. But that final piece, that final piece of the jigsaw, was the finding of a, a minute spot of airborne blood on the cuff of that guy's arm, crumbly overcoat, which we couldn't see at the time, which actually was, the, like I said, that, that final piece of the jigsaw. And he was arrested, of course. He was convicted uh, and went to prison for, for life. Sally Ann Martin was my next guest. She's an author. This was interview number 30 from May the 1st. Sally Ann talked about when she first realised that becoming a writer was the career path she wanted to follow. When did you first realise that becoming a writer was something you wanted to do? Not at all. I started um, Colcott's, the first book, which was when I was 45. Did I start that? Maybe a bit before then. So about five years ago, um, I'd written articles 
and bits and pieces for magazines and newspapers. But I'd only do it if like I'd seen something in the news that sparked something. I didn't set out to write so much a day. And then, yeah, so I I don't even know what it was that I just thought I'm going to write and I'm going to take it seriously rather than just in two years' time go, oh, I should have started then. I'll just start now and I'll do, I'll get a mentor. So I've got a writing mentor who's, who helped me get started. And I just went for it and it was just co- complete focus that I was going to get it published. So I listened to what, what it needed to be. And, you know, there are rules, there are formulas that if you don't follow them, then publishers aren't, aren't probably going to buy the book. Like what? What sort of formulas? Just like there's all there's all different kind of ways of formatting a book, you know, like the three act structure or the five acts. So the way the rising tension. There's a, a great book called The Science of Storytelling by Will Storr, and that goes into really why we all like any story, whether it's round a campfire, whether it's a book, whether it's a film. You know, the things we need to hear from a story. You know, like a, a protagonist, an antagonist that we want comeuppance of some kinds that we need those things in a story yeah there are things you need to do with it but you can't have like loads of characters that do nothing just because you like writing about them and they're quite funny that won't work so you have to cut all that out what do you work on first do you work on the characters and get their backgrounds and mannerisms in or do you have a vague idea of the plot what's the starting point usually the setting so the first book was obviously I grew up there. I grew up on a council, a row of council houses just outside Sheffield. So that I had that, and I wanted to write about that. The clinic I worked at one of the last um, Victorian asylums in England in the nineties, which was in St Albans. So that was, I mean, I knew when I worked there. I was like, this is going to. One day I'll write about this this building was called Hill End. It doesn't exist anymore, obviously. It closed in 95, I think. I just went there as a naive care assistant, um, and it was quite a shock. So is this for the criminally, I hate to use the word insane, but the criminally mentally unwell, I guess, is maybe no, a nicer way of saying it? it uh, like a psychiatric hospital, it would be. They're, That's an even better way of saying it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but I guess at some point... <laughs> At some point, yeah, you, you, the words always change and things are constantly like on a back foot about what's okay and what's not. It, originally, in Victorian times, it would have probably had criminals there. It would have been a dumping ground for pregnant women, women who had sex out of marriage. Basically, anything that was an embarrassment to families would have gone to places like these these asylums. And then as time goes on, they change the names and they become hospitals. So it would be it could be anything. I'm trying to think. I don't there will be people that have committed crimes, but they're not there. It's not like a Broadmoor type place. They are okay. hospitals for So it's not high security. Like, um, like Broadmoor would be, or I worked on an acute ward, so they would come in with all kinds of things. And I guess they could have had more, some that were more secure and observed, but normally people that were a risk to themselves or others. So a lot of sectioned patients came in. So every everything from schizophrenia, depression, postnatal depression, I'm trying to think. Did you get most of the inpatients or were they outpatients as well? All inpatients. So the acute okay. wards, I think they were only supposed to be there a short time, but they were there. I worked there for about four months in the end. That's all I could take because by the time I left, I thought, I honestly don't know if I should be sat in an armchair with them 
or coming in and going and working here because I just it was so blurred it became so blurred it was such a dark place Investigative journalist Donald McIntyre was up next. May the 22nd, I spoke to him for interview number 31, and he tells a very interesting story about the time he was kidnapped in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. You mentioned that you got kidnapped. Can you tell Mm. me that story? Yeah, I was over in uh, the DRC, the Congo. I was doing a programme with the BBC Wildlife Department on the uh, the trade in rare uh, mountain gorillas. And the, in that in that part of the Congo, going on to Uganda and Rwanda, there is the Kasebe National Park. I'm sure I've got that wrong. And it's the 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 mountain gorillas, of which there are only about a thousand left on the planet. And these were the same troop of gorillas who, um, in 1977, Attenborough, David Attenborough, did his famous documentary yeah. with and and got up close and personal to. Although they're, you know, at the at the time that was a, a fantastic thing. Nowadays. They wouldn't necessarily recommend that because about they're very careful these days about the cross-contamination of diseases and human and transfer of the zootonic diseases and all of that. So, but, I, but he basically put that tribe along with um, Diane Fossey on, on um, the world's map. And uh, some of those gorillas have been killed, poached. Some of them have been uh, ki- uh, traded and kidnapped. And we were on the trail of that. And while we were doing that, we crossed into the Congo. I did with a team of wildlife officers, and we were kidnapped by a militia of um, from uh, in the DRC, and um, held captive at gunpoint, taken aside. And we tried to make some phone calls. I phoned my producer, who's in a hotel in Kigali, in in Rwanda, and he figured, "Oh, you'll be all right, Donald. You'll talk and walk your way out of it." The confidence we had was kidnapping was pretty familiar there, you know, in the sense that it was always a deal to be done between militias, and so our wildlife officers got a phone managed to phone somebody very high up in Rwanda who phoned up a a connected militia in uh, the Congo. And eventually after a day, we got released. But having spent lots of times in war zones from Beirut to the former Yugoslavia, as I say, out in parts of the Golden Triangle being shot at, you know, it's quite interesting is that when you're reading about conditions from afar, you don't necessarily realize that in most war zones, and some parts of the Ukraine, obviously, very different. But lots of people continue to live their normal lives. So, like in, uh, I'm reminded, like in Beirut during the wars in the early '90, you know, people still went to school. They still shopped. The shop markets were there, and there were still kidnappings and bombings and shootings and and mortar attacks going on every now and then. And but still, people. So five or six people might die in a city of a million or 800,000. And and that's probably the number that might die necessarily in a car crash. So there there is always in a war zone, there's a people going about their the real lives. And that's a really bizarre thing. And you're and so when you're that's the surprise when you're a reporter in these places and oh, God, there's a lot of normal activity going on in between. Now, obviously, there are crunch points. And I think this modern day warfare is slightly different. But back in Beirut and the former Yugoslavia, a great deal of kind of um, normal activity going on. And for the reporter on location, the impact upon you, uh, if one of your colleagues have been killed, maimed or injured, or a local colleague or someone close to you, then obviously it hits you very hard. There is a sense when you're first there as a young reporter, it feels like a video game. I don't play video games, but I'd imagine that's what it feels like. It just does unreal quality to it. 
we flew into Sarajevo once and um, with a um, crew from Los Angeles, I think KCBS, and they did a K-San dive, which is a dive from about a couple of thousand feet, but nearly a straight dive down into Sarajevo airport to avoid enemy fire or fire from the Serbs. And I remember stepping out and there was some fire around and the, the I was producing a little item or helping to produce an item. So the Los Angeles reporter just came in and did her piece to camera on the airport for literally 10 minutes and then flew out. But uh, but um, it just felt surreal. So a lot of it is surreal. So I've been very lucky when I've been in those war zones, nobody close to me, not my crew, not a connected uh, or, or, or three or four circles away from it. They haven't really, they've never been damaged, hit, hurt. So I still have this kind of, uh, I've been very fortunate in that respect. So, but a lot of the time in a war zone, it just feels very surreal and and uh, it has an ethereal quality to it. Of course, you know, if somebody close to you is hurt or somebody you know, a family who you've got to know on the ground is hurt, then it, it obviously has a much bigger impact. I then did a triple kind of header i guess me and two guests basically matt johnson and john murray joined me on june 26th this was interview number 32 they were discussing their book no ordinary day and the murder of their friend and colleague wpc yvonne fletcher wpc was how they were known at the time i asked them about this harrowing image that you can look at online if you wish and it's of yvonne i think it's been held in the hands of john after she was fatally wounded by a shot fired from the libyan embassy on st james's square in london speaking of i don't want to say important photographs but powerful images there is an image john of yourself cradling yvonne after she was shot mm-hmm what are your thoughts when not only looking back at that image, but at the time that it happened, what was running through your head at that point? Well, I wanted to make sure she was okay. Um, but on the other hand, I was thinking, what's happened? Is it going to happen again? Or could it happen again? And the other thought that obviously went through our mind is, We've got to get out of here pretty sharpish. Um, all those things were rattling through your head in a, in a matter of seconds because um, at that particular point, I still didn't really know what happened. At what point did you realise? It was it was you know probably a few minutes later when it, when it, you know when I saw the blood and. Um, and uh, the screams, because obviously, you know, there, there were demonstrators who'd been shot as well, uh, who were mm. behind us. Uh, when I saw the blood and and, and saw the, and, and heard the screams, then obviously it started to click. Something's happened here. We got to get out. And Matt, you mentioned that you were part of the the hospital escort for Yvonne that morning. Mm. At what point were you made aware of what had gone on? Yeah, I, I, I just before I mentioned that, Stuart, I would just add to to what John's mentioned there the the fact that this this was a a routine demonstration it was noisy uh, there was there was anxiety between the two different factions the pro the pro gaddafis and the anti gaddafis but nobody absolutely nobody could embrace the concept even that somebody would lean out of the first floor window of a an embassy building and fire a machine gun on 40, fully automatic at the people standing outside. The whole concept was 
totally alien to police thinking at the time. Nobody was aware of that kind of thing could happen. It had never happened before. It's never happened since. Every single officer who um, was there facing away, they had their backs to the embassy, had no idea what had happened. John, I remember when he, I first interviewed him, he described it as thinking it was firecrackers. And I think many of the other officers say the same thing. They thought it was fireworks had gone off. And you see in the in the television coverage them standing there for several seconds, sort of stunned. And the, the, the square is completely silent for several seconds after the machine gun has gone off. As it gradually dawns on people what has happened. Now, there are those amongst the police officers who happened to be looking in the right direction, who saw the gun, saw the two guns, in fact, because there were two windows, two guns were fired, and they saw it happening. Of course, gradually, those people start shouting at their colleagues, and people like John, Sergeant Howard Turner, that he was standing with, realized at that moment they, they were in the land of fire. They'd been subject to machine gun fire. For all they knew, the machine gunner was just reloading, ready to fire again. Yet none of them panicked. None of, the, none of them did what they shouldn't do. None of them ran away. They all thought about evacuating the victims, Yvonne and the 12 demonstrators, the Libyan demonstrators who were injured, and they got them out first. Now, they were lucky. They were lucky because if that machine gunner had been reloading and had fired a second burst of bullets, there would have been a lot more people killed. But they showed incredible bravery that day. Now, to answer your question, um, I was driving a police traffic car. Um, and the first I knew of it was when we were called on on the uh, the radio system from Scotland Yard to say, can we go down to Charles II Street, pick up an ambulance, and take the ambulance to Westminster Hospital on the hurry up. I didn't know who was in that ambulance. I didn't know what had happened. All I knew was that ambulance needed to be taken there very quickly. I didn't know John was in it. I didn't know that my friend Yvonne Murray, uh, sorry, Yvonne Fletcher was in it. Um, I only found out that afternoon when I went home after work at six o'clock. The six o'clock news came on and a picture of Yvonne flashed up on the screen. And that was the moment I learned it had been my friend in the ambulance. What was that ambulance journey like for you, John? Uh, well, it's one I'll, I'll certainly never forget. I mean, you've got to remember that uh, in that ambulance, because only, initially only one ambulance turned up uh, and there were a lot of people injured there. Um, but I was in the ambulance with Yvonne and there were three or four Libyans uh, uh, in the same ambulance who were sitting on the floor who'd been wounded and were bleeding everywhere. Um, so you can imagine, you know, the carnage and, and you know, the pain, the suffering, the blood. Um, it's it's a journey I'll, I will never, ever forget. And finally, John Williams was my interview on July 3rd. This was interview number 33. He's an author, and we discussed the Cardiff 3 case, the murder of Lynette White, and also how he was sued for libel on the back of his book, Bloody Valentine, which was about that case. So this is the story of the Cardiff Three, and it's basically a massive miscarriage of justice. Um, three black men wrongly convicted for a murder, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So what's, what's the story then? How did you become involved in this? Yeah, Cardiff is not really... Uh, I mean, the Cardiff docks, which 
people who never lived there, sometimes called Tiger Bay, has a kind of reputation for violence and stuff. But actually, it was nonsense, really. There hadn't been a murder there in God knows how long. But in 88, this girl was uh, brutally murdered, a young prostitute. And, you know, the police spent ages looking into it. Everyone was talking about it. It was about nearly a year when no one was arrested. And every time I was in London then, but I was going back home a lot. So and anytime I went home, people were talking about it. People had theories about who might have done it, that kind of thing. And my initial idea was, well, this sounds like a great, I wanted to write a novel at this point. I thought I've interviewed all these crime novelists. How hard can it be? I'm going to give it a go. And this sounds like I'll, I'll just take the sort of, you know, the basics of this story and turn them into a novel. So I started doing that, but then the more, but then the police arrested these guys. They went to trial. They were convicted, and you thought, well, and at first I thought, well, you know, you you see these papers. You know, you look at the newspapers on the front cover. You've got like three dodgy-looking guys, and you know, headlines saying animals, and you think, well. They've been convicted. Probably they've done it. But then I started looking into it some more, and he just thought, Jesus Christ, this is absolutely outrageous. These three guys, there is no, there was no, well, it was almost pre-DNA, but there was literally no forensic evidence tying them to the uh, the murder room. There was loads of blood on the dead girl. None of their blood uh, matched the, you know, matched that blood. There was no. There was no nothing, essentially. They clearly had loads of stuff that should identify the murderer, and it didn't belong to any of these guys. And yet, basically, after whatever it was, nine months, the police spent trying to find someone to charge with it. They decided to you know, round up some of the usual suspects and interrogate them. They started with the boyfriend and interrogated him for, like, days on end till he cracked. And... Uh, then they used that to put leverage on other people, tried to make them confess. They didn't confess, but they got the boyfriend to implicate, you know, a couple of other people, and they took it to court. And I don't think these days it would have even gone to court, and I don't think any jury would have convicted. But, you know, it was a much more racist time. The trial was took place, not in they moved it from Cardiff to Swansea, which is basically, certainly then, an all-white city and uh, it was an all-white jury and they see these kind of black guys from the Cardiff docks and clearly they just felt like well uh, they look like you know they look right and somehow managed to find them guilty despite the absolute total lack of decent evidence against them so yeah once I <laughs> discovered all that I thought writing a novel would be a bit you know a bit unimportant really so I got involved in the campaign to try and get the guys out of prison and uh, started writing it as a you know, as a non-fiction account of what happened, yes, it's a brutally frank tale of not just the racism aspect, but also police corruption, which got a bit of backlash for yourself. So the the three men convicted: Tony Paris, Youssef Abdullahi, and Stephen Miller. Right? Yeah. But based on what I've researched, there was five men arrested, but only those three were convicted. Like you've said, the the blood match, none of them. Brutal, bizarre conviction. But I read that you got sued for libel by the police on the back of this book coming out. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, the, the book did pretty much stick it to the uh, South Wales police and some police officers in particular. And at one point I um, printed, and one of the strange things, there were five 
five guys were tried and the jury verdict was baffling because two of them were found innocent and the other three were found guilty, which made no sense at all. One of the two who was found innocent was a guy called John Acty, and I talked to him and he blamed a particular copper who had it in for him for the reason he'd ever been charged in the first place. And uh, in passing, he said, yeah, and the same guy, he'd done it to me before back in 83. Okay, so I put that in, and that was found to be, well, his solicitors claimed that was a libel. I actually, you, you could say anything you like about the, the actual, the main case itself, because it had been found, you know, they'd been found innocent, so clearly the police couldn't have acted well. Mm. But this back in 83 was, you know, they would claim that was a libel. I looked into it. The case back in 83, the judge had thrown it out of court and criticized the police evidence. But back then, the police federation who were backing the case, they'd won 97 straight libel actions. And what everyone thought right. was that if, you, if a copper stands up in court in his uniform and says he's been libeled by this evil journalist over there, you know, the juries would always believe the copper. So the... Publisher's lawyer said, "No, you just, you know, we just got to settle." So uh, the one person who made money out of that book was uh, DC Thomas Mitchell. Well, there you go. Thirteen clips from thirteen of my twenty-seven interviews from twenty twenty-three. There's only going to be two parts to this best of series. Let me know what you make of it. I hope you enjoy it. It's very interesting looking back on these interviews and putting this together because. If you speak to that many people about that many things, you're going to forget what you've actually talked about. So it's been interesting to go back and refresh my memory from these conversations. If you listen often, you know that my memory is terrible. So check those interviews out if you want the full versions. They're in the description of this episode. And I'll see you all for part two. Cheerio!